Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Trauma sucks, and to varying degrees, we've all experienced it. Research shows that its effects can impact and disturb developmental phases of life. Studies of transgenerational trauma show that trauma can even have negative consequences for future generations of people who aren't even born yet. What is trauma? How does it impact our lives? What can we learn from its impact? And how can we heal from trauma and perhaps become even stronger afterward? Fortunately, I know just the guy to ask. Dr. Frank Anderson is a Harvard-educated physician who is known across the globe for his brilliant contributions to the study and treatment of trauma and PTSD. He is one of the most important teachers and contributors to the development of Internal Family Systems, a state-of-the-art treatment for trauma, eating disorders, and many other conditions. He is also the author of a book I loved called Transcending Trauma. I am not alone in my love for this book or Frank's work. Luminaries like Dr. Bessel van der Kolk has said, this is a wonderful book that should be read by anyone who wants to lay down the burdens of past trauma and those who seek to accompany them on this journey. As you will hear, Frank is a total delight, full of levity, brilliance, and kindness. He walks the talk, and he has benefited personally from the same therapy he provides, as have countless numbers of people. So listen in as Frank and I have an info-packed fun, yes, fun, and unfiltered conversation about transcending trauma. Dr. Frank Anderson, who has asked me to call him Frank, welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. I'm really excited about this conversation. Oh, thank you, ditto. I've been a fan of your work for some time, and to have you on is just such a pleasure. And you and I have both referred to ourselves. I feel a real kinship with you because of this, at least in part, that you've described yourself as the president of the hair club for men as it relates to therapy. And that's a tagline I've used about myself as well. For those of you not familiar with Cy Sterling, the former president of hair club for men, he used to say, I'm not just the president of the hair club for men. I'm also a member. And you see that he was bald. You and I both treat some of the anxiety and some of the trauma that we've experienced ourselves. And I was wondering if that would be an accurate statement. Totally, 100%. I mean, my reference to it is I'm not only the Hair Club president, I am a member of that group. And the group <laughs> that I'm talking about is trauma survivors. You don't become a trauma specialist just because it's an interesting topic. A lot of people kind of position themselves or posture themselves as that way, but honestly, not for me. I mean, I wouldn't be devoting my whole life to healing complex relational trauma if I didn't have a trauma history myself. So that's the reference that I use in relation to that quote. I think that's fantastic. And there exists a paradox in the zeitgeist whereby people will say things like, oh, I just went to Target and the line was so long. I'm so PTSD. And they may overuse that term. 
And paradoxically, they also may actually be trauma survivors and not know it. And I'm wondering if you could explain what trauma is and maybe what it's not so that you could flesh that out for the public. That's really a great point because both are actually true in my experience. One of the things that I'm doing in my career right now is moving outside of mental health into the general public. I really feel a calling to be healing trauma on the larger scale. It really is a calling for me, honestly. And so I've been aware of using this word trauma. I have a trauma history. Everybody has a trauma history. And it's actually a belief of mine that we all have overwhelming life experiences. I don't know anybody, honestly, who hasn't had some form of overwhelming life experience. But this word trauma is tricky. It's really tricky, which is what I've come to learn. Some people have a real allergy, adversive reaction to, no, not me. I don't have trauma. I'm too strong and powerful. Don't make me a victim like that. Mm. So there's this adversive reaction to the word trauma. And then other people are totally clueless and unaware that actually what they went through totally classified is traumatic and traumatizing. So I do think there are two sides, two polarities in this word trauma. What I've started doing, honestly, Adam, is when I'm moving into the general public, I say everybody has overwhelming life experience. People nod their heads to that. People relate to overwhelming life experience. And then I'll break it down. And honestly, I think part of my role is to be educating people about what trauma means, what trauma doesn't mean, what is it, because people overuse it. I mean, how many times people have said, oh, I dissociate, I have a flashback. What do you even mean by that, right? Because they can (laughs) overuse those terms. So I think education is really important in that way. For me, trauma is about frequency, duration, and intensity. Honestly, I don't like using the DSM 5, 6, 7, 4, whatever version we're on these days, definition of trauma. But I do think about frequency, intensity, and duration of whatever experience someone has in their lives. And the other thing that's super important for me is the perception of our parts. Okay. Because somebody can be bullied on the playground and not have any PTSD symptoms as a result of that. I did some research early in my residency, the group of people who were kind of in gangs in Brooklyn, New York, they didn't have PTSD because that was normal for them to live in that environment. And it was shocking. And these kids, these teenage kids in the upper suburbs of Boston, in these wealthy communities had the similar experiences, but had whopping PTSD. So it was really interesting to me. So it's the perception of our internal experience that also contributes from my perspective on what is categorized as trauma. Because one person can, it can be totally overwhelming for, and the other person can normalize it. And you always have to tease that out. Is it being hidden and, and repressed? Or is it really not as big of a deal because of a lot of other variables? And so much of what you're describing is around the context, at least per this idea, and expectations perhaps relative to what's going on. I'm guessing that in certain cultures, things that would be traumatic over here are not as traumatic over there. And I think of the term suffering as being resisting reality. Pain times resistance equals suffering is the mathematical equation, I believe. And I think you're speaking to that when you're talking about the Brooklyn Gang affiliates. Is that correct? Yeah, it is really in the context. 
And when it is normalized, it's part of the culture and everybody in your group has that. It gets processed. It gets put in a different kind of category and different experience. Now, you can have a highly sensitive person in that gang, too, where the group doesn't experience it as traumatic. But one individual member might because of their sensitivity, because of their individual sensitivity. So you really have to look at that. All of the factors from my perspective, I mean, I was a sensitive kid. And a lot of the things that I experienced, somebody else may have not experienced as traumatic as I did. You know what I mean? And so it is in that way. And this is uh, not a pathologizing statement, but I'm going to borrow from an axiom from Scandinavia. I believe it goes something like most children are like dandelions. You can step on them and they will just kind of find their way back up. And some are more like orchids and they are far more sensitive. But if you give them the proper treatment, they will blossom in ways that no one else will. And I think you and I are probably on the orchid spectrum on that front. And some of us may even feel like, oh my gosh, you and I both grew up in the same context. And even our mutual acquaintance, Lori, talked about yesterday, siblings who grew up in the same house may have vastly different outcomes just because of their genetic differences. One of the things I would want to disabuse the listener of is that just because you turned out perhaps more traumatized than somebody who went through the same thing doesn't make you weaker. It may make you more orchid-like, but I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on that? A couple of things I want to say about it. So I totally agree with what you're saying. And so you have to take the individual in context of what the family environment is, the cultural environment is, uh, the environment of the world in which they're living in. So I think the context is super important. I think there's this individual variability. I'm also going to say the reaction to the trauma is also super important. I think I quoted this in my book that Bessel van der Kolk said years ago when I was at team meeting with him at the trauma center in Boston was it's not really the trauma in and of itself. It's the reaction to it that has a huge impact. The example that I like to think about often is like, for example, there was the Boston bombings a couple of years ago or September 11th. The whole world responds in a positive way. Tons of money comes in. Resources are there like crazy. So those people who experience a global trauma like that and get a global positive response, not saying that no big deal, it's not traumatic for them, but it's different when there is this huge positive response to a traumatic event versus the little boy or the little girl Mm. gets sexually abused at night walks downstairs to the kitchen table and nobody talks about it because nothing just happened. So you're in that trauma in total isolation. There's no acknowledgement, there's no recognition, and there's no connection or support after. So that's another huge variable that we look at is not only the trauma, but also the response to the trauma has a huge impact too, separate from individual variability I know you talk about resilience and I'm excited to talk about resilience in that way because that's another factor around who responds to what, how, Mm -hmm. and then how do the people around us respond? Both very, very important. And one of the things that excites me about modern psychology is that we are beginning to get rid of this idea of codependence in as much as we are supposed to just basically take care of ourselves. There was, I mean, you remember, you're nodding. I mean, you remember back in the 80s and 90s where it's like, do it yourself. And it's like, now we realize that so much of the healing comes from love. And even you have described 
that trauma can block love and that love incurs the healing. And I'm thinking about the mirroring factor when we're having an overwhelming life experience in light of what you just said and not having it mirrored back in a way that resonates inside and allows us to attend to ourselves in a self-repairing manner. Ultimately, that is the byproduct of the relationship itself. I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm so glad you can. That it's my favorite quote of all time. Seriously. It, it really is like trauma blocks love, love heals trauma. I say it's my favorite quote, honestly, Anna, because it really didn't come from me. It came from beyond and it came through me. <laughs> so I was writing that book over and over again. I kept hearing trauma blocks love, love heals trauma, trauma blocks love, love heals trauma. So it resonated so powerfully for me. And I find it true personally is that trauma blocks who we are. It blocks our core essence of our personality. It gets in the way of who we are. And it is love and connection that is, in fact, what heals trauma. And when I say love and connection, it's both external and internal. It's the love within from self to parts, if you will, how much I can love the parts of me that have been traumatized core to healing. And it's the love and connection that I'm supported by in my life that creates a safe enough environment to allow me to do that healing. There's relational healing and there's internal healing and both require love and connection. So good. Yes. And you somehow channeled that most perfect phrase, trauma blocks love. And I can tell you straight up when I'm at my best in my relationship, I'm open and amazing. And when the old stuff yeah. that was then shows up now, yep. oh my God, yeah. where did I go? There's a firewall between me and, and my beloved. And I'm sure that many of our listeners can resonate with that idea of like, there are moments when I'm just somehow creating a firewall between me and everything I want. And it's the trauma. Yes. So let me tweak that a little bit. Sure. I'm thinking of a, a current experience for me. It's not that we do anything to block it. It's not that we have any conscious awareness of doing something to block. Of course. It happens to us. It yes. really does. And I have this recent experience. You know, I'm doing some work in LA right now, which I'm working with some amazing people. I just love the work that I'm doing. And I was visiting my dad who's ailing, who's dying, who has a lot to do with my own personal trauma history. So I was in a very fragile state and something came up for me and it really took me over. And I reached out to these people that I was working with and I was triggered. And I presented in a way that wasn't so great. I kind of knew it was happening, but I couldn't stop myself. Do you know what I mean? It was of like, course. I was triggered. I reached out to them. I caused somewhat of a storm. Thank goodness all of us are self-aware enough that we're like, I was like, hey, owning my piece, friend owned their piece, another friend owned their piece. So we worked through it very well. But without the awareness, I was like, something is happening to me right now. This is not me. I was presenting in a way that was other than me. Do you know what I mean? And it Absolutely. does happen. It happens to us. 
We don't do it. It happens to us. When those traumatized parts get triggered, they really take over. They really take over and they make us not who we are in our most aligned self. Now, one thing I'm going to say to not blame these parts that take over, they're doing it because a wound of ours has been triggered. Absolutely. So you want to have that perspective like, this ain't me, but it's happening to me for a really good reason. And I have to do my work to sort out what that is. So it's not my fault, but it's my responsibility to. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about it's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you, which is the title of a great book, as well as what you're speaking to. Let's get into that because you've been talking about parts and you have been really one of the great Johnny Appleseeds as it relates to IFS, internal family systems, which came about, I believe, for you in 2004. And you've been doing it ever since. I was wondering if you could describe a little bit about just the least a person needs to know about IFS as it relates to trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll back up a little bit more because in 1992, I met Bessel van der Kolk and he was at my residency training program in Boston. That's That's where I met Bessel. I've known him since 92. So I dove into trauma partly because of my own trauma history. But at the time I didn't know that I was just compelled, right? I've got to help these people (laughs) not knowing that I was really being triggered about myself and worked with Bessel at the trauma center for a long time as a psychiatrist. And I stumbled upon Dick Schwartz because Bessel had invited him to one of the annual trauma conferences that Bessel had every year. So I went to this conference and saw Dick Schwartz do like a one-day workshop. And it was one of these kind of real aha moments for me. I was like, holy crap, I've been working with parts. I've been working with people with trauma histories for a really long time. And IFS had something different in it for me that really activated my own system, I'm sure, but really resonated for me because I had trained in EMDR. I had trained in sensory motor psychotherapy and IFS completed the picture for me. And basically I can say the idea of IFS is everyone has parts. We are not whole. Back in the day, Adam, we tried to make people whole and unified. The IFS perspective is no, thank you. We are all full of parts. They are normal aspects of our personality. And that's just who we are. We move in and out of different aspects of our personality. With trauma, particularly, these normal parts of us will take on extreme roles in the service of protection or because they're carrying pain, they're carrying a wound. So we have parts that protect parts that carry wounds, and we have normal aspects of our personality. So that gets all messed up because of trauma. These parts that protect overwork like crazy in the service of keeping the pain away. And so it creates all these symptoms, anxiety, depression, substance use problems, eating issues, any number of symptoms from the IFS perspective are overworking parts. So we don't hate or get rid of drinking or suicidality, we appreciate them for their positive intention of keeping pain away. So it's a little bit of a game changer in that way. The other thing I'll say about IFS just briefly is that everybody has this thing we call self-energy, okay? Separate from parts. Some people call it their core, their essence, their soul. It's this internal wisdom. It's the trauma blocks love, love heals trauma. 
I know what I need to heal when I'm in self-energy. Like I have an inherent wisdom. Everyone does. Everyone has inherent wisdom of how to heal what your system needs if you can access self-energy. With a lot of trauma, self-energy is blocked because parts are dominating. So that's the tricky business in therapy is working with these parts, having them relax, helping them let go of their roles so we can gain access to the pain and heal it through self-energy of the client, not the great interpretation of the therapist. Right. Which is so Sorry. Gratifying. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. Yes. The, the expert is the client in this case. Yes. Let's go back to this rather counterintuitive yeah. idea that you just threw out, which is totally normal to you, but maybe a first impression to the listener. You were kind yeah. of talking about some otherwise negative behaviors, uh, some adaptations that parts of ourselves might have. And it's my understanding that there is kind of a self that is kind of the CEO and there are various EMT operators who deal with emergencies that may be roided out, overworked, exhausted, and so full of cortisol that they are hypervigilant. But one of the things that happens with the parts that's trying to attend to the emergency, sometimes with regard to frequency, duration, and intensity, sometimes yeah. like all at tens. And so what ends up happening to your point is suicidality and addiction, which may be the most resourceful thing a person has at that given time. And one of the things I've heard you say is that you need to not fire the part, of course, but to reassign the part new tasks. And I was wondering if you kind of speak about the addiction, suicidality in these non-adaptive, but perhaps the best adaptive that they had at the time, in spite of how counterintuitive it is, that we maybe thank those parts and reassign jobs to those parts. A couple things that I'll say about that. One is absolutely we appreciate these parts for doing the best they could to help at the time. And oftentimes these, quote, maladaptive behaviors are behaviors that they have taken in because of their environment. So if you're in an environment where there's a lot of drinking, yelling and screaming, as a kid, you're going to use drinking, yelling and screaming to protect yourself because it's what you know. So you pick up these behaviors based on the environment. So if you're in a dysfunctional environment, you're going to have dysfunctional adaptations. It's just normal. So we pick up, oh, I know if I cut because I hear my mother say, I'm going to kill myself all the time. Maybe that'll help me. So these child parts will use what they have resource to. When my dad yells at me and calls me a son of a bitch, that really shuts me up. I'm going to call somebody a son of a bitch because it'll shut them up. You know what I mean? We use what's in our environment in order to protect ourselves. So that's where these maladaptive patterns come from. They come from dysfunctional environmental strategies. I had one patient who was shocked that she had an eight-year-old part who used to drink scotch every time her and her husband got in a fight. She's like, how could an eight-year-old want to drink scotch. I'm like, I don't know. Let's ask the eight-year-old part. And sure enough, this little part said, every time mommy and daddy would have a fight, they would go into the parlor afterwards and have a cocktail. And the cocktail made all the fighting go away. Wow. Right? So this little eight-year-old part is like, I know scotch makes problems go away. So it took on, because of its environment, this idea 
that alcohol makes the problems go away. So as my client gets older and her eight-year-old part gets triggered, she reaches for the scotch because that part has this experience that alcohol makes problems go away. So this is how these maladies, this is, you're having an aha moment over there. I mean, just to think about how precious and sacred that moment was between you and that eight-year-old part of the client. I'm floored. And that could have been something that that person died with never understanding. And you begin to love these parts for what they're doing. Oh, sweetie, thank you so much for working so hard, right? You really embrace the positive intention. Exactly what I was thinking. Embrace the positive. And it's a game changer for the client. This part who's been drinking, who everybody in culture and society is trying to get rid of, by the way, go into your substance abuse program, go to AA, do everything to stop drinking. Wait a minute. What about, oh, sweetie, thank you so much for what you tried to do. And of course you learned it that way. That makes so much sense. So the part feels heard, seen, known, and understood, and it relaxes and it's willing to work with you instead of you're trying to get rid of me. Because in fact, culture, society, and therapists are trying to get rid of these parts. Let's stop suicidality. Let's stop drinking. Don't cut. So we embrace the positive intention of everything, even yes, people, even suicidality, even all the opioids that are being abused. It's like you're using it in the wrong way from my perspective. All right. So we're not embracing a positive intention. We're trying to fight it and get rid of it. Who gets excited when you're forced to stop doing what you feel is life-saving. Nobody. So that's one piece is the intention. Second piece is I don't assign any new roles to any parts. I'm going to tweak that a little bit. Okay. Okay. I don't assign it because that's me as a therapist imposing. Oh, of course. I misspoke. I didn't mean that the person, him or herself, yeah, assigned. it's the part and the client self doesn't even assign it, Adam, interestingly enough. It's not the client self. It's the part who drinks, the part who is suicidal, the part who binges. Once it no longer needs to do that job of protection because the wound is healed, then the part is freed up to do whatever it wants. This is what I say to parts that drink or binge or over-exercise. What if you could retire from your job? What if you had the option to retire? What would I do? It's what I've always known. Whatever you want. It's your choice. And that's very enticing. That's brilliant. So it's not the person, and certainly not the therapist, yeah. it's not the person who assigns the role no. to the parts. I'll give you another clinical example, which was so fun for me and shocking for my clients. So this was a client that I worked with for years, long time client, very severe abuse. So much so that she had some ritualistic satanic abuse that was mm. killing animals, this kind of stuff when she was younger, so that they really encoded her into this abusive network. So She was one of these people who was one of these cat ladies. Like she had five or six cats in her little one bedroom apartment. She was like a typical cat lady. So we did this huge piece of work, an early childhood memory when she was sexually violated by a group of men. It was a very horrific experience for her. 
And the part of her that actually was quasi psychotic, like it left reality to survive what she went through. It kind of left reality. It would be gone. Right? It was I can imagine that, that the only way to adapt would be to right. associate. So she had psychotic parts. People called her schizophrenic. She wasn't schizophrenic. It was an adaptation. I'm going to leave this scenario. Once we healed the wound around the trauma of being raped by this group of men, that psychotic part was retired. We said, okay, you don't have to do this anymore. What would you rather do? And I asked the part, not the client. And the part says, I want to go horseback riding. And my client was, she's like 65 years old. She's like, what? Horseback riding? She was shocked <laughs> by this. You know what I mean? And after we listened to the part, like she's like, I can't go horseback riding. Like, this is ridiculous. But she actually ended up getting horseback riding lessons because she always loved animals. But because of this ritualistic abuse that she experienced, she had this terror around animals, could never go horseback riding. She was able to be with cats. And it made perfect sense to her after. She said, I've always loved animals. It totally makes sense that a part of me, now that it doesn't have to be psychotic to survive, wants to go horseback riding. Like it totally made sense to her. So these parts kind of become who they normally would have been had they not had to do this extreme role of protection. Do you see what I'm saying? 100%. And one of the things that I'm taking such delight in is that the parts may have surprises, delightful surprises. Yes. And it really is who we are. These parts of us are aspects of our personality. So even though it was shocking to my client, she's like, I'm 65. I ain't going horseback riding. She's like, <laughs> of course, it makes sense to me because that aspect of who I was has been suppressed forever because of my trauma. So now that the trauma isn't dominating my life or the protections are not dominating my life, yes, of course I wanted to go horseback riding. And I give her so much credit because she called somebody up, she got some horseback riding lessons and she did it. So she became more her as a result. Totally, way more her. And that's one of the things that's so exciting in, I'm guessing, enlivening and revitalizing about the work that you do with the IFS is that by claiming those parts, we become way more whole. I know that sounds almost silly yeah. to say because it's so obvious yeah. on the face of it. Yeah. But if you feel it viscerally, this woman could have lived a, again, a full life, not knowing that she needed to ride horses. And it was a passion of hers that got thwarted from her trauma that she was able to kind of actualize after her trauma was healed. Absolutely. And I want to kind of go back to what we were talking about at the beginning with regard to context, because yeah. one may leave this interview thinking, oh, well, if our expectations in the context were in sync, even if it was an awful experience like satanic worshiping, it's in sync, it's syntonic, except for the fact that it was an overwhelming life experience for her. And it went against, I would say, for lack of a better term, tell me if you agree with the statement, it went against nature, our nature to love and to be kind and to tend and befriend. Instead, she was just in a perpetual state of like, this is not right. Yeah, and people really know that. Like they know right from wrong inherently. Mm. But the need to protect from trauma dominates. It takes over. I'm guessing that the need to protect from trauma in many ways causes us to stuff it down and 
exacerbates the situation by a long That's shot. Exactly right. Most protected parts, interestingly enough, draw to themselves the very thing they're trying to protect from. This is another really interesting concept that IFS talks about. And let me give you an example of this. This is a, an easy example that I utilize. For example, somebody who drinks a lot, they might be drinking because they felt unloved, no good, worthless, neglected as a child. Mm -hmm. So the drinking primarily protects, I'm useless, I'm worthless, I'm no good, I'm unlovable. If you look at the wound, what ends up happening, drink, 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 you end up getting divorced, losing your job. You're sitting on a bar stool on Sunday night and you're all alone and alone and feeling unlovable as a result of your drinking. You see what I'm saying? So the very behavior that's trying to protect I'm alone and unlovable ends up perpetuating it because we gain these adaptations typically when we're young, we're not very sophisticated. We're pulling from dysfunctional things in our environment. So they're not great solutions. And parts know that. They know they're not great solutions, but they haven't had an alternative option. It's they did what they could to survive, which is what we appreciate about them. And as you're speaking, there are certain laws that seem to almost be like the laws of physics as they pertain to our existence. One of them is that we on average want to be loved and to give love. Yes. And the other one is we want to live an authentic life. Yeah. And one of the things that I've loved and taken great pleasure in is the little experiment where you throw out your hand, and you say something that is true, and then you say something that is false and try to resist and use all of your strength. You're weaker when you say something that's not true. And you, and I'm not outing you, you are on record as a gay male. And I'm guessing that if there was a time in your life when you had to pretend that you weren't and you weren't accepting all of your parts, that you were less vital, maybe compartmentalized and felt like crap. Oh, that is an understatement. <laughs> I'm in the midst of writing a, a memoir right now, which is really a fascinating process. Hey. And when I'm going through my life and I look at the ways, like I married a woman at one point in my life. I grew up in the Midwest in a very conservative family. So I would look at my uncles and I would say, that's the way a man's supposed to be. This is what you're supposed to do. I was so not myself for so many years. I did what I was supposed to do. I did what I saw men doing. And I was so academic, heavy. My main protector in life was I'm smart. That was who oh, yeah. I was. Smart, 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 got into Harvard, smart, smart, smart. You see pictures of me when I'm younger. I was like a stuffy academic, you know, in medical school and in residency, married to a woman with a beard, with a suit and tie. It's like, who the hell is that guy? Oh. Right. It was armor, 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 all armor. And I was not me. I mean, I was in there. Totally. I was <laughs> in there. But you were imprisoned. But I was in prison by academic success and needing to look and act like a man. I was a smart study. So I knew what they looked like and how they acted. The more I healed my own trauma, the more those layers came off. And I'm so much more me than I ever was before. And all I am is me now, as opposed to everything else that I needed to be to protect myself. 
Absolutely. And I can only imagine that this life that you left would have had you looking a lot older. What you can't see, listener, is <laughs> looks he shared his age. I would have guessed at least 15 years younger, maybe 20. And you look phenomenal. And I can only imagine that a part of that, of course, is lifestyle and genes. But the other part is, yeah, embracing your parts must have played a role in the way you present. Be huge because I like really am so much more fully me. Yeah. Like in every aspect, I would have had a couple divorces. I would have had a couple affairs. I would have had a big beer belly because I would have been drinking like crazy to suppress all that I was trying to suppress, which was my authentic self because it wasn't allowed. I'm only speculating, but I could only imagine. Sure. And, and you're a female. I don't I would have been saying, why are you on the Tinder app all the time? And <laughs> And you would be bathing in this kind of marinade of like, oh my gosh, cognitive dissonance of like, wow, yeah. you'd probably be in shame and feeling yeah. like you're a bad person when in fact, you're not at all bad. You're just not in the right place. That's exactly right. And doing everything I could to push away who I was because it wasn't okay. Thank God you freed yourself and you were willing to endure the discomfort. Imagine facing this and saying to your wife, honey, we're actually not a match. And I'm going to go off with Mike now yeah. and claim my life. That yeah. was not an easy thing to do. And yet here you are embracing your parts and you are the walking role, very much a role model for the IFS model. And one of the things that you're also kind of taking the piss out of, and I'm so grateful for you for doing it, is many times people think, oh, you're a psychiatrist. You should have it all figured out. You don't experience things the way other muggles do. What do you think got us here? We experience things and maybe even more so, but at yeah. least as much. And if we don't cop to that, there might be a problem. I think a lot of people, and I'm saying this because I was one of them, go into this field because we have really strong, empathic, caretaking parts of ourselves, And that's mostly due to our own overwhelming life experiences. So I'd rather focus on your shit than my shit. And I get paid for it. And people think I have a noble profession. We migrate into this from my perspective because we're trying to help. We're good people and we care, but we also can hide and focus on somebody else's stuff instead of our own. So I'm saying that because I was one of those people. I'm like, I'll go help other people instead of focusing on myself. The problem with trauma, particularly, especially relational trauma, when you start working with somebody who has a trauma history, they inevitably trigger you as a therapist. They trigger your own stuff. Right. Talk about that. Yeah. Oh, all the time. All the time I talk about it. I don't talk about counter transference. I talk about the parts of the therapist that get triggered because yeah. their shit gets activated yeah. when they're with somebody who has a trauma history. So it activates and inevitably activates our own stuff. And we're like, wait a minute, I went into this field to hide, to focus on you instead of me. Now you're triggering mine. Totally. So it really is for me. And this is the big message for me is do your work, do your work, do your work. This is not only for therapists, it's for everybody, because I want to be a walking example that you can be your authentic self if you do your work. It's hard and it's doable. Most people don't think it's possible, but I really want to get that message across. Our system is organized to keep the pain away. Our protective parts are there to keep the pain away. If we move towards the pain and heal it, 
we become more and more of our authentic self. And I believe everybody's capable of that. And that's the message I want to get across. And again, I'm using the word paradox a lot. Yeah. I remember learning how to drive. And one of the things that we had to learn was that you turn into a skid, not away from the skid. Yes. And there is so much that is paradoxical about anxiety that we need to approach the thing that's aversive. Otherwise it grows. And the more we avoid, the more it grows. And that we are all just works in progress. We're never done. I like to say that I earned my wife through therapy and I'm maintaining her by continuing to work on myself because I Love really that. think she deserves to have a great husband and I'm still cleaning the cobwebs, but I'm committed to delivering within this lifetime the best yep. version of me because she deserves that. She's amazing. I love that. I love that. I, I feel like not only am I on the hair club president, I call myself a therapy lifer. Like, totally. I will be in therapy forever. And my husband works on himself in a slightly different way. He's a very spiritual person, but he's doing his work in the way that works for him. I'm doing my work in the way that works for me. And I think that's what makes a good relationship in the long run is you've got to constantly work on yourself. Like in IFS, we talk about doing the U-turn. Look I love that yourself, concept. Right? I, I, I was actually one of my questions. Can you explain the U-turn? Yeah. Yeah. Do the U-turn, do the U-turn. It's not like, I think you're a jerk. <laughs> the first word or the third word is a you. Yeah. I think you're an idiot. No, that's about the other person. That's not about you. I'm hurt when you say that, or it makes me feel bad, or I feel alone, or I feel like I feel is different than you are. For sure. One of the things we say too is, if it's intense, it's yours. I'm so pissed at you because of what you did really means I'm so pissed at you because I just got triggered about something in my history. And it really isn't about the other person. And that's very hard for people to be able to tease out. When I'm really mad or there's something's intense in me, it's really about me? Bull crap. It's about what you did. Mm -hmm. No, it's not about what the other person did. It's what they trigger in you that you need to work on. That's so important and such an, right? such a difficult thing to practice. So difficult, but to... it's really true. One of the things we offer when we do couples work in IFS, when we work with couples, we don't say, you know, they come in. Why are you here? She's hysterical. He's on the spectrum. She feels too much. He doesn't feel anything at all. Typically, like that's such a stereotype. We would just use that common stereotype. So to a couple like that, I would say, so what if you don't get so mad when she's hysterical? What if you don't get so emotional when he doesn't feel? We say, what if you don't get triggered by the other person's behavior? That's the offer. I Not we're going to change the other person. What if you don't get triggered? When they leave the toilet seat up, when they don't clean the house, when they don't take care of the kids. Are you interested in that? Are you interested in reducing that variable of resistance? Of your own activation and yeah. your own trigger because of what somebody else does? Because it's inevitably about something within you. So good. Having read Transcending Trauma and loving it, you could, mm -hmm. I mean, you're a Harvard trained physician and you get really into the nitty gritty, whether or not it's the hormonal aspects, the physiological aspects, the chemical aspects of trauma. So in spite of the fact that we're talking about real, perhaps what people may be misled to think of as being soft stuff, it's 
fueled by hard research and its empirical application. I mean, the applications span so much. I'm also delighted that you're going to be making a foray into showbiz to some extent. I know that you've I believe you were also a contributing hand to, if I'm not mistaken, that great Pixar movie, Inside Out. I worked with Pixar for a while on a project that never launched, but I didn't consult on the movie. I got introduced to the producer, the director of the movie after it came out. They said, oh, my God, Frank Anderson, look, Pixar did a movie about IFS in parts. So I ended up working with them for a while. We were going to do a PSAs and kind of commercials for kids on athletes that had done untoward things in their career and working with them on their parts and animating those and doing PSAs for kids. So it was an amazing project based on all the characters from the inside out. We need that so bad. How are you? I was in an aborted project. You need it. We didn't get it from the dusty crypt immediately, if not sooner. The people over at Pixar are lovely people. I loved working with them. It was really amazing. We never got it funded. It was really the main trouble. It was a big funding problem and getting some of these athletes. This was another thing I have to tell you, talk about shame. Like we were looking at Serena Williams, Michael Phelps, Simone Biles. A lot of them didn't want to come vulnerable when they're looking for all of their endorsements and livelihoods. So it was a really tricky thing. And I'm not blaming either one of them particularly. It was more like in general. The athletes that we were reaching Mm -hmm. out with were hesitant. Michael Phelps has done a beautiful job subsequently advocating for mental health. I know. He's awesome. Ellie Raceman, they're doing even Serena Williams. So a lot of them have found a way to be vulnerable because they're huge role models, right? I really value that. But at the time, this was a long time ago, that was some of the hesitation separate from the funding. So now more and more people, I, you know, trauma is a thing in our culture now in a way that it wasn't before. Oprah's done her show on Apple TV of the me you can't see. There's so much more happening in the Hollywood area, which is partly why I'm kind of moving there within the year is to get that message out on that platform. It's not the only platform, it's one platform. But look, there's so much that's happened with the Me Too movement with all the things that have happened untoward with people in power, I think culture and society is kind of ready to work on this in a different way. Black Lives Matter, like there's so much going on in our culture and society that says this stuff is traumatic and we need to deal with it. So I really hope to be part of that solution. Is there an NDA? Are you allowed to share a little bit about what you're working on? Or There's a couple different projects. So a couple of them I can't. I have NDAs, but one that I'm doing, which I'm (laughs) excited about, and this project, we've got a contract signed, and the launch is actually happening today because it's National Dance Day, interestingly enough. Oh, no way. So Julianne Huff is somebody that I'm working with. She's one of the judges on Dancing with the Stars once upon a time. She's on Broadway right now, but she developed a dance movement platform called Kinergy. She was working on Dancing with the Stars for years and said, oh my goodness, look at the transformation of every one of these contestants because of dance and movement. And she got a download of information on this dance movement to help people with trauma histories. Okay. Energy. Yeah, exactly. And I started consulting with them probably five or six months ago now and brought neuroscience to this Kinergy method of dance. So they're relaunching Kinergy as a transform method, and it's going to include trauma-informed 
movement as it relates to dance and healing trauma. So we're not calling it a healing modality per se, but look, Vessel van der Kolk talks about body keeps the score, right? So much happens in movement in the body. And I'm so honored and thrilled to be consulting for Julianne Huff on this Kinergy platform to help people heal through movement. That's one thing I can share. And there's others that will come. I'm beyond stoked to hear that you're doing that. And I do remember attending a a training with Bessel and learning about dance and yoga and other body-based activities that are so helpful with regard to moving trauma. And that's just delightful. One of the other movers of trauma that shows some promise is psychedelics. And I'm wondering if you could weigh in on that. Yes, boy, that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. (laughs) But I've done the ketamine training so far. So I've I've been involved in the ketamine training with Phil Wolfson. He's in the Bay Area, actually. So is Bob Grant. Those are two people that are doing a lot of the psychedelic work, specifically on ketamine. You know, friends of mine, and I'll be doing the MDMA training also soon. Michael Midhofer is someone who did level one IFS training with me in 2004. So I've known Michael. Wow. He's the PI, the principal investigator of the MDMA trial. So I'm steeped in that world in a way. And particularly as a trauma therapist, I'm very mixed about it. Mm. Okay, I'm really mixed about it. I think there's amazing potential when it's in the right hands. I think MDMA is going to be amazing for PTSD. Like the studies are indisputable around what they've been able to find. MDMA shoots people into self-energy. It shoots people into self-energy and they do this amazing healing work. I've talked to Michael about this a lot. And so I think there's a huge place for MDMA for trauma and PTSD. Ketamine is, works differently because it's, it's an anti-glutamate drug. It decreases excitability. It kind of more relaxes protectors in a way than it does shoot people into self-energy, but it's doing something different. The thing that I'll say about these is the drugs in and of themselves have a therapeutic effect, but if you're not a good trauma therapist, you can do harm, okay? This is the skeptical part of me is like, Mm -hmm. you can't do psychedelic training and become a good trauma therapist. It doesn't work. (laughs) It's a tool. So if you're a good trauma therapist and you use this tool, amazing things can happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like a gazillion percent. And I couldn't agree more. And so a friend of mine, Elizabeth Call, Dr. Call, she's a big person in the psychedelics world. We're talking about doing a training together of bringing psychotherapy to psychedelic work. MAPS has their own protocol, but MAPS isn't really psychotherapy. They're studying the drug, not the therapy. I think IFS is a great modality for trauma treatment and incorporated with psychedelics is a beautiful fit. So I think you have to be a good therapist in order to utilize psychedelics effectively. And it's not a substitute. I think people are going to overuse it for a while, just like anything new. We don't know end of life stuff, substance abuse stuff, trauma. We've got to sort out what each one of these psychedelics does for each of these conditions. I know the people at MAPS, the organization. Sure are being very thoughtful about it. So I know some of them and they're working hard to make this pure and clean and clear, but there's a bunch of people, I hate to say it, who are like, oh man, 
Uh, this is great. I could use psychedelics <laughs> now legally. This is awesome. There is that contingent sure. in this group that makes me skeptical. So are you suggesting that if you're going to be a beach lifeguard, that perhaps you'd better be an amazing swimmer with an incredible attention span and maybe some years sitting in the lifeguard chair before you go to a, a difficult beach? <laughs> yes. I love that analogy, Adam. That's a great analogy. You you're know, welcome to use it. Just sit on the beach chair and then call yourself a lifeguard, right? <laughs> I've got my final magical question for you, dude. If by chance you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity one skill or insight that would really improve the lives of individuals as well as perhaps society at large, what would that skill or insight be? And what do you imagine the impact would be on both individuals as well as society? So that's what I'm trying to do. Like that has become my life's purpose. Really. I am devoting my life to healing trauma. I'll tell you my mission statement. And then I'm going to add a dimension, right? Mm. I feel like I'm here to heal trauma and bring more love, compassion, and unity to the world. That is my purpose to heal trauma, bring love, compassion, and unity to the world. And I feel fully committed to that. The unity piece is something that kept showing up for me, interestingly enough, because for the longest time, heal trauma, bring love and compassion to the world. And I kept hearing unity, unity, unity. I was like, oh, it's so hard. There's so much divide in the world, whether it's racial, political, gender, sexual orientation. And I kept hearing this divide has to be handled in order for us to survive. And so I've really taken this on in a more wholehearted way, the divide that we're in right now. And honestly, the more I unpack the divide, the more I believe it's driven by common wounds. Whatever side you're on, whether it's politically, whether it's racially, whether it's gender, sexual orientation, doesn't matter to me. I believe the commonality is the wounding. And so I really feel we have to address that if we're going to survive here. So I feel fully committed and I will do whatever I can. I cannot do it alone. There's no way. I feel like I want to spread the word and collect as many people as possible that can help on this journey of healing. And healing the division, you know, healing trauma, healing the division. I love that wish so much and that prayer for unity. And I can't help but think about the genesis of so much of what ails us is identifying with an oppressor, an aggressor, and yeah. wanting to win them over in this lifetime by being hard, being mean, rather than softening and recognizing that the more courageous path is softening and limbering up and opening ourselves up to other people. And I think you're speaking to that. And what I've been noticing is that so much of the meanness and the harshness is in identifying with these really, really mean well, voices. Well, that... our, pro our protectors are mm -hmm. trying to protect our wound. Exactly. And the way they protect is by fueling division. Yeah. You understand like my side's right, your side's wrong or I'm good, you're not, it's all self-protection. I'll tell you this quick story. I know we're running out of time, but 
My brother-in-law, who's very different than me, very conservative politically on the other side of the world, him and I have never really connected. We've been pleasant with each other. And we went to a wedding last May and I sat at breakfast with him and I was like, oh, crap. (laughs) This is going to be one of those breakfasts. He was somebody who was at the Capitol, for example, and was very proud of that. And I'm that's a different person. That's who I'm not. But we have this beautiful conversation about the way both of us were abused when we were younger and how we were both kind of defending our position. And we finished that tape and he was like, wow, Frank, he had no awareness that his wounding was part of his drive. And he got up after that breakfast, Adam, and hugged me for the really the first time, the first time. And I hugged him, too. He's like, could I get you to sign my book? And it was this beautiful joining. It really was. And I thought, oh, my goodness, we are the same coming from totally opposite perspectives for whatever reason. And it was a very powerful moment for me around the divide, like the unity piece. And I really believe it. It's not just a a cool thing to say, like I experienced it and I want to cross the divide in order to heal. Otherwise we're in trouble. I couldn't agree more. And I just want to give you a hug from here to, I'm guessing you're in Massachusetts now. Uh, uh, Just phenomenal. Just the wisdom and the kindness and your whole self at least your whole self as of 42922. And because tomorrow there may be even more um, <laughs> as you continue to evolve and make yourself more available to yourself yeah. and others. I'm so grateful to you for sharing your wisdom and your kindness. And I just can't imagine this not having a long half-life in the brains and hearts of the listeners. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. This was a blast, man. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.